from Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. After that glorious proclamation of the gospel in the choir anthem, one hardly needs to or wants to preach. So moving were those words. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in travail together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God, his ways are past finding out. In the presence of the communion, there is preaching already. It preaches to us the centrality of the body of Jesus. Without his body, there would be no Lord's Supper. And therefore, it reminds us also of our bodies, for we are made like him. The Supper preaches to us about the future of that body, for we take the bread and the cup until he comes remembering the death of his body. We don't do this just once as we do baptism, but again and again because the Lord has designed communion to be a reminder over and over the centrality of the body of Christ, the dimension of the future as well as the past, and the place of our own body. And while the Lord's Supper teaches and reminds of many things, one thing we could say is that it calls us to keep the immortal prospect of our own body before our eyes. That's just what this paragraph from Romans chapter 8 teaches us. For last week we saw how there is an indescribable glory waiting to be revealed in us and through us. 
It is as if we do not realize the dimensions and greatness of this glory, and therefore the Apostle Paul, led of the Spirit, underlines and heightens the glory, that we may not miss it, but will fully appreciate the glory that is to be revealed in us, that great bright prospect of our human body. How does he do that? How does he emphasize it? It's always a discipline and a marvel to watch the apostles' method. First, he describes this prospect of our body. Then he proves it. Then he makes some practical deductions from it. Follow him. What is the prospect before us? Well, he gives it to us in three beautiful pictures. Images come marching off the page to grasp our mind and keep us from thinking that the glory to be is dull in any sense. First is the manifestation of the sons of God. That means, of course, that these bodies of ours now hide our real identity. The Christian is somewhat undistinguishable from his non-Christian neighbor in a general way, at least from his body. You can't tell by looking. There's no uniform or badge or flag that we carry. We have the same bodies with many of the same illnesses that our neighbors have. So we're hidden. But we'll not always be hidden in disguise of sameness. The day comes when what we really are will be unfolded. And that's called the manifestation of the sons of God. And what we have been all along, supreme sons of God, will be shown to all. And we'll be like Christ in glory. Think of his glory on the mountain of transfiguration. How bright and splendid it was. Ours will be like that. We are hidden as he was hidden. When he walked among us, you couldn't tell from his flesh who he was. But when he rose from the dead and had a glorified body, then it was manifested that he was the Son of God. And Thomas, seeing him, said, My Lord and my God. And the world will exclaim when they see the true identity of the sons of God. That's our prospect. Have you got it in view? Are you living in that light? The second picture that is given is of the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's coming, and the suggestion is that we're now bound in some sense. We are. Not that our spirit is bound. Our spirit is freed by Christ, but our body is bound. It sickens and weakens and dies. And when our spirit wants to be zealous for Christ and to do this and that work, the body lumbers behind and complains and falters. The body is bound to an arrested development and to an inherent decay within it. Some Religions of the world, looking at the boundedness of the human body, say, well, the best thing to do is get rid of it. And as soon as you're, you're dead, that's good. Your spirit is free and put off that, that prison house, but not Christianity. No, the body is good. 
It is bound, but it will be set free. We shall all be changed. And the sickness and the weakness and the wrinkling and the spot and blemish and the disease that trails us and all the things that vex our life and chain it, all those things will be put away and the body will be glorious and spiritual transformed into light and beauty and we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. It'll be our body, uniquely ours, recognizably ours, really ours, but a new body, the same but new, glorious and wonderfully efficient and utterly and instantly and gladly obedient to the spirit that dwells within us. The third picture is of the redemption or adoption of our bodies. We think of our redeeming experience as something that affects our soul. We, our souls were cleansed by the blood of Christ when we embraced him, yes. But that redeeming love of Christ has not yet penetrated to our bodies. The whole man is not yet redeemed. The soul is redeemed, but not the body. But the day is coming, the day of days, when Christ appears. And we, either raised from the tomb or changed in our own living position, we are made like him, and that is the redemption of the body. Then we'll be able to sing, Worthy is the Lamb who has redeemed us because the whole man will be redeemed, body and soul, and we shall be holy with the Lord. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun, says the scripture. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall any sun light on them, nor the moon, for the lamb which is in the midst of them shall feed them and lead them unto living fountains of waters. Oh, Christian, do you realize the indescribable glory that awaits your body? Its glorious liberty, its wondrous redemption, its manifestation to be what it has always been, to be shown that you are Christ's own forever. That's the immortal prospect. Are you cherishing it today? The Apostle Paul, in this masterful way of his, doesn't just leave these three pictures in isolation suspended over us, but he puts an undergirding of proof on which they can rest as a foundation. Two great pillars, nature and your own heart. Look at nature. He says that nature, the whole creation, or as the King James reads, the creature, meaning nature, the whole creation, not humankind here, but the inanimate, irrational creation around us, is craning its neck, looking, standing on tiptoe, earnestly stretching forward for that day of days. Why? He personifies nature and puts it in the position of yearning for something. 
very interesting because we have already seen how when man fell, nature, the domain over which he was Lord, fell with him into decay and arrested development. So that nature now is like a chained boxer, muscles rippling, power and potential, but constrained, unable to reach its potential, to break out of its bonds. That's nature. Each spring it would try to come to something beautiful and lasting, but fall arrives and it dies. Nature cannot somehow break out of its apparent and arrested decay and development. It cannot come to what it really was created to be because the influence of our fall spread to it and it is under the curse as we are. But the one who put it under the curse did that in hope. He not only gave a curse, but a promise. And therefore nature not only feels its bondage, but also is straining for the day when it will be liberated from that bondage and will be able to become glorious in development and to really give forth the praise to the God who made it as nature was meant to do. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. It will be. But that will come when we are manifested and liberated and our bodies are redeemed and changed. Just as nature's fall was connected to our fall, so will nature's resurrection be connected with ours. The Bible gives us glorious pictures of that great day. And it shows us, especially in the book of Isaiah and in Revelation and in other places, words like this, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the harmony of nature, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, the cow and bear shall feed, the young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the glorious destiny toward which nature is moving. Not a temporary deliverance, but the permanent state of the new heavens and the new earth which Christ will usher in and establish as his own. O oh, glorious day when Christ comes and restores his handiwork to its original pattern and beauty. That's one pillar. The other pillar un which girds up our hope of an immortal prospect is our own being. Because he says, the first fruits of the Spirit are already in us. In other words, the Spirit is tempering now our attitudes and character and molding us for an eternal state. 
We feel it. Even now, He is preparing us for heaven. And we're tasting the influence of the Spirit in us. And it is good, and we want more. Our appetite is whetted for heaven by every gracious work that the Spirit does in us. And therefore we groan in our inner hearts. We groan because of our own sinful condition, because of the fallen world we live in. We groan, mourning over our sin and longing to apprehend that for which we have been apprehended. We yearn to be there. The soul is more at home where its object of love is than where the body is. The soul has already moved its focus to glory. And therefore we groan to be manifested as the sons of God. Do you see what elemental very intimate and close pillars these are. Nature around me, the spirit within me, these very real close things assure me that my body has a future. It will not decay in the grave, and that is the end. It has a glorious destiny, the liberty of the children of God. then, says the apostle in verses 24 and 25, shall we do? Well, it's really a call here to a large hope. Because he says, look, we were saved not by hope, but in hope. We were saved in hope. That is, hope is the environment into which we were brought at conversion. Because we already have only a down payment we have received, but a small portion of what is coming to us as the sons of God, just a, just a down payment, just an earnest of what is going to come. The rest is to follow. And so hope is, is central to the Christian life. Hope is not like wishing or longing or desiring. Hope is possessing something inwardly which you will later on possess outwardly. It's not hoping or wishing you'll get something. It's knowing that you're going to have it because you already have it in your heart and someday you'll have it in your hand. That's Christian hope. It's a certainty. And we're saved in that spirit. Hope, therefore, is an essential element of Christian living. Many of you have strong faith, and I commend you for that. But faith has a sister whom you must meet and love, called hope. Your faith looks back at Christ and his cross, and that's good. It looks upward at God and his activity, that's good. But your hope looks onward. Your faith accepts. Your hope expects and moves forward into what God has for you. It is when you begin to exert your Christian hope that faith becomes dynamic, loses its stagnancy and deadness, and begins to actually lay hold. Many Christians are living back there somewhere at some earlier experience or earlier friendship with another Christian or a pastor, and their whole burden of life is behind them. 
That's utterly unscriptural. Faith must be wed to hope and faith pressed into hope so that faith becomes dynamic and contemporary and powerful. Are you filled with hope? Are you walking in hope? If nature can be craning its neck to see the day of days, what about you who have a rational soul and an intelligent being? Can you not eagerly stretch forward to the day when you will see Christ? Ought not your posture be like the Apostle Paul saying, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. Or like the psalmist, My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. Oh, Christian friend, you claim too little for your faith. There is far more here than you have dared to even appropriate to yourself. There's an inconceivable glory waiting for you. And at the center of it is the immortal prospect that your body will be made whole and perfect and splendid. And with that body and with your soul, you shall forever serve the Lord and enjoy him in glory. I ask you to meditate on these things ask yourself some searching questions. Is this hope found in my heart? Or am I concerned with this world and this life and its values? Or do I have one eye on the day of days? And when I look at my body, do I say someday it will be like his glorious body? Now to the table, for there is spread the meal of hope. Christ is here. His body is already made glorious, and he waits to redeem your body, believer, into his image. All day of days, let us pray. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Oh, blessed God, forgive us when we have lived in discouragement, in negatives, in defeat. Plant our hope certainly on that great day, that we may look with hope on all events between now and then, and that the optimism of the apostles may become the characteristic of our heart. And as we come to the table, Lord, fill us with a great hope, the hope of overcoming sin,
of conquering evil, of taking over the world for Christ, of being yours, body and soul, 